My name is Stanley Fayez and you're listening to The Road to Open Science, a podcast brought to you by the Utrecht Young Academy. In this episode, I talk to Cameron Nalen, professor of research communication and an advocate for open access publishing. In his role as the advocacy director for Public Library of Science, Cameron has taught and written a lot about sustaining scholarly infrastructures. He shares with us the principles he has identified for taking collective action. Before we get there, we talk about the barriers we face and a problematic yet very widespread barrier, excellence. Yes, you heard me right, excellence. In a 2017 article, he and his colleagues have identified that the rhetoric of excellence is completely at odds with the qualities of good research. How is that possible? I'll let Cameron explain. I'm Cameron Nalen. Um, I'm Professor of Research Communications at Curtin University in Western Australia. Um, and prior to that, I was at the Public Library of Science as Advocacy Director. So, so you have been on several sides of the sort of academic business on the research side, but also on the service, on the advisory boards. Uh, can you briefly tell us about your journey? How did you walk through these paths? So I started uh, my life as a fairly conventional researcher in chemistry and biochemistry. Uh, I wanted to do research on evolution and how molecular evolution worked. I started with a PhD uh, in a chemistry department, but doing molecular biology. Um, so I've always worked in interdisciplinary areas. In fact, I've tended for a long time, I was doing uh, biological sciences in chemistry departments and physics facilities. Uh, so first at the University of Bath, where I did a postdoc, and then um, at Southampton University, where I was a lecturer. And then I moved from Southampton University uh, to a post at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory uh, in the UK um, at the Neutron Source. Uh, so I was there trying to build up a program on biosciences um, using neutron scattering, uh, which was relatively unusual at the time. And then in parallel to that, I got interested in data management, uh, laboratory notebooks, online laboratory notebooks, and the web as a means of research communication. Um, from there, I got sucked into open access and into various communities advocating for uh, radical open science. So I was involved in um, efforts uh, really led by Jean-Claude Bradley uh, to radically open up notebooks. Our, our lab notebooks were online in real time. Um, but also developing technology and systems to better collect and manage data, thinking about reproducibility um, and thinking about access and engagement. And then after a while, I realized I was doing more work on that sort of technology and open access and open science stuff than I was actually doing on the job I was supposed to be doing um, and developing this program. So at that point, um, was when the job at PLOS came up, Public Library of Science, um, to be for an advocacy director. And that was, I spent three years um, working on developing policy, but also having the opportunity to think about strategy and technology um, that could underpin open access, um, and a lot about the implementation processes. And so it was through that three years, there was a lot of policy implemented. There was an, a lot of policies introduced and argued about in North America and in Europe and in the UK in particular. 
And through that process, I guess I started to see that there was a distinction between um, the policy goals, um, the process of implementation, and ultimately the desire to really change the culture uh, of researchers and the academy. And I got really interested in the question of why this seemed so hard, um, why it was that um, policy wasn't enough, um, how could you build community momentum um, uh, for uh, open scholarship in general. And so um, I moved on from PLOS to go back into um, research. Um, so I'm now actually in a humanities faculty um, at the Centre for Culture and Technology at Curtin University, a cultural studies research centre, um, where we're looking at, in particular, the journeys that universities are taking towards being open scholarship or open science institutions from a both bringing the science perspective, so the data gathering and the analysis, um, but also bringing a humanities perspective and thinking critically about what the data can and can't tell us and what the stories that people tell about the data tell us about what they're thinking. So let me then start from uh, your work on uh, rewarding interaction with, uh, with the public and also on policy development you have this, for me, very nice article, uh, which I think it's even in the title, Fetishization of Excellence. And that's what I want to ask you. So how did you come up with writing this article about excellence? And also, t tell me what you actually found out. So the place where that article starts is very much with the problem of culture change in the academy. Um, if we want to think about, let us use open access as an example, um, we know that there's going to be resistance to that because people want to publish in particular places um, to get particular kinds of credit that are important for them. And so we talk about uh, excellent research, we talk about excellent journals, um, often meaning something to do with journal impact factors. And the challenge for open access implementation was always we could create new journals and we could make them actually very cheap to run, but we couldn't necessarily persuade people that they were worth the risk of publishing in a new venue when they were familiar with old venues that they knew what how they were ranked and how people would see them and how people would think about them. So that was the sort of concrete motivation. The, the more theoretical part of this arose out of trying to think, well, where does this excellence concept come from? Um, where, did it, where did it create? Because when we talk about it inside the academy, we usually blame people outside um, to doing it to us. It's the, it's the fault of administrators. It's the fault of funders um, who decide who to award money to or to who to give jobs to. What really struck us was that when you go and talk to those groups, funders and administrators, they will say they're just reflecting what the academy, what the department, what the, the researchers themselves are telling them. And so there was this interesting cycle of always blaming someone else for where this came from. What was interesting about that was the way in which you could see that this was a story that we were telling ourselves that it's become very important for us as academics 
to see where we fit in some sort of ranking. And because of that, we then buy into this notion that there's an objective comparison. Because if I'm comparing myself to you, and it's just my opinion, then that's no good. I want someone else to claim this is an objective ranking so that I can say I'm better than you. Um, And so this whole thing reinforces itself. And once that's in play, it's actually really quite hard to break. Um, And then in the article, we explore the consequences of that and and how they're quite bad with the intention of hopefully opening up a debate um, about how we might need to change things. Um, Because it has profound problems for diversity and inclusion. It has real problems with disciplinary diversity. We came at it very much from the perspective of wanting to try and puncture uh, this conversation um, to get away from the notion that is often sits at the bottom that of course we're talking about excellence of course we want to be excellent and to get people to really ask the question what do you mean by that um, and if you don't have a sense of what you mean by that then you've got to realize that your priorities are being set somewhere else um, by someone else or by something else uh, and that's not good for your research Correct me if I'm wrong, but you say that excellence actually doesn't have a meaning, really a, a concrete meaning. Uh, it is something and everybody refers to it, but it sells very well because it's very easy. It's very quick. And who can be against excellence? And we have all the frameworks. I mean, not only at the level of journals, but we have in the programs in Germany, there are centers of excellence uh, as clusters of university and they can have huge financial consequences for the places who get this logo. So how did you find out that actually excellence is meaningless? So it's not just that excellence is meaningless. It's important that it be meaningless for it to serve the function that it needs to serve. So, yeah, so so we had to, to do this. I mean, what we really did um, was to dig into, in particular, university mission statements. Um, So if you look at university mission statements, they all have the word excellence in them and none of them define it. Um, If they do say anything about what it means, they talk about rankings. So it's this circular discussion. Um, and, And that turns out to be really important because if it is the case that this is something that's going to be shared across the entire academy, that we all agree this is our, our, our um, pole star to, to, to t- tell us where we're going, then there's no way we could possibly agree on, a, on an objective measure that would be sensible. Um, so if we have something that's shared, it actually has to be meaningless because otherwise it wouldn't be shared and otherwise it wouldn't be as strong a driver. Um, so that was what was really interesting. And it's, you don't have to dig very hard um, to realise that um, whenever excellence is used, it's either not defined or it's defined in such a way that it's actually talking about something more specific but something else. Um, so it might, for instance, um, in the old uh, Hefke guidelines for the REF, um, they talked about quality, rigor, and novelty. Now, those are three very different things. I mean, I think still quality is still an issue. Um, again, 
there are many different qualities we might want to think about, um, amongst which are rigor and novelty. Um, so quality has a lot of the same problems as, as excellence does. You also suggest alternatives uh, instead of excellence. You suggest alternatives which eventually can sell, uh, are easy to communicate to decision makers who maybe don't have much time or much more insight than uh, uh, the actual actors who make real decisions have at the levels, lower levels of the university management. And uh, I saw a couple of lists. You talk about capacity, breadth, soundness, accessibility, and diversity. Uh, is it a comprehensive list, or do you can can you talk about more qualities? In that paper, at least, I think we focused quite a lot on soundness and and capacity as things that seemed seemed to make sense. Um, and we made an argument for how they could be made to make sense, but that was that was certainly not supposed to be an exhaustive list. I guess the main point we were really trying to make is that in an evaluation process, you should be always thinking very hard about what is the outcome you want? How is this evaluation process going to lead to the kinds of outcomes you want to achieve, um, where those outcomes might be Uh, improvements in the quality of life for patients, they might be a deeper understanding of our culture, or they might be some sort of technological capacity um, in an engineering or a computer science setting. So in that sense, it's very open-ended. Um, they're quite they're difficult enough to evaluate, let alone put any sort of numerical proxy on. Um, so that's really, we're just right at the beginning of that. Um, but where our work is currently headed is very much in trying to think about how the qualities of the work itself make the knowledge that's being generated uh, usable and useful uh, in a broad as appropriate range of contexts. Um, and again, you get into a kind of circular argument about What would that mean in practice and, and how do you tell? And how do you, in the end, make choices? Because the, the difficult questions here are ones about the choices of funding this project versus that project or giving this person a job versus giving that person a job. Um, and those are not decisions that are going to go away. And you're always going to be comparing um, apples with lollipops. Um, not even They're not even necessarily you know, all types of fruit. Um, so, you know, you probably don't want to just measure sugar content, which is kind of what we do at the moment. So the moments of actually change or the possibility of change at the level of institute or university or even a department are not that frequent. You know, normally people come to their jobs to do their research. That's the main thing. And there are some periodical evaluations. Those are the moments that you uh, look at your sort of overall performance Usually they are sort of uh, come with a huge amount of preparation, looking into bibliographic uh, research, or there are moments of hiring new people. And apart from these, I think there are not many, uh, say, life-changing decisions are made, so you cannot change the track of a department on a daily basis. These are the moments. And now you're telling me that at these moments, people, instead of looking at the conventional ways of, I don't know, ranking people, looking at their... H-factor and then say, you know, we're going to just uh, 
uh, hire or at least interview the, the top 10 in the edge factor, but we have to look at the other other criteria. Is that what you mean by in practice? So I think I disagree with the notion that there aren't possibilities on a day-to-day basis. I think one of the most powerful things you can do is make small changes in the words you use um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, so simple example, if you start talking to people not about their nature paper, not about your journal name article, but your really interesting work on X, you know, so you take the journal name out of the conversation, it stops being a marker, then that's a really small change that nonetheless, I think, can start starts to, to filter through. And there are lots of little things like that, little cultural changes that in the end build up to the big culture change that what is valued is the qualities of the work and the interest in the work um, rather than the currency of the department being whether or not you're published in Jack's or FizzRevLet or you know, the Journal of the MLA. So I think we have a duty to think about how we can better make those decisions and that will include thinking thoughtfully about the data we use to do that shortlisting process. Um, so I think, you know, just counting up the number of articles or just counting the H-index is a really, really bad way um, of doing that. We know it's very bad because it's not good data and it's inconsistent and it's actually meaningless in many ways. I mean, the H-index, for instance, is really just a proxy of age. It's not, doesn't tell you anything much about the quality of a person's work in practice and certainly not comparatively across, across multiple people. Um, so what does that mean about that process? Well, I think what that means is we've got to think very carefully about how our personal biases, our, our implicit biases are playing in these settings. If we use data carefully, we can use it to challenge ourselves as well as making that first process you know, more efficient. Um, I think for me, um, when I see someone who's only got nature papers, that's a red flag for me because it means they probably haven't done work on their own as a small team. They may not have all the set of skills because they've been a small cog in a bigger in a bigger machine. Um, and so I want to see that broader breadth um, of publication outputs, including the evidence that they've been driving something themselves. These are, but that's still something you can probably only do at the second stage. If you've got 400 applications, um, it's going to be really hard to get to that point with 400. So normally, maybe at least in my surrounding, the understanding of diversity is quite quickly boiled down to gender uh, diversity. Uh, that's something I think people are getting used to also to include other things. Maybe you would like to firstly define your definition of diversity and also tell me how can data help a hiring committee extend the pool uh, and make it more diverse with the definitions you're going to provide? Yes. Yeah, so, so the question of what diversity is a really good question. The work we're doing at the moment tends me, tends me to the belief that all diversity um, is a first-order principle in knowledge production. So if you buy into the idea that interesting things happen when groups come together then diversity is a first order principle. So that means uh, gender, life experiences, sexuality, geographical origin, um, ethnicity, but also 
disciplines, um, methodologies, perspectives, theoretical frameworks, all of these things um, need to be considered. And then we need to make some really difficult um, analyses around what kinds of different diversity um, are productively brought into contact um, and what needs to be in place to make them productive. So, um, so for instance, I think there's you know there's strong evidence that if you if you improve um, gender diversity, you get better outcomes overall. You make a workplace happier. You make it more collaborative, and you make it more successful. Um, we also have to recognise you have to actually support that and invest in the systems and platforms that make those people productive in the context in which they then find themselves. So the question of then how can we use existing forms of data? Um, so there's a couple of things that can be really effective. One is deeper citation analysis. I'm not a great fan of citations for a lot of things. Um, but if you look at co-authorship networks and citations, then you start to get a sense of um, the diversity collaborations a person brings, um, who are they interacting with, how productive are those interactions. Um, that's one way um, of, of doing this. I think if you look closely at the evolution of uh, a person's position in author lists, at least in those disciplines where that's a thing that has some meaning, which is not, of course, the case in all disciplines. Um, and then I think you can look um, out to their, their their further work, a lot of which leaves a trace on the web. So is this person um, engaged in public debate? Um, are they a productive person in, in debates on social media? Um, and and how does that sort of those sort of interactions play out? Those are all things you can actually get information on. So looking at the wider um, interactions a person has. Now none of these none of these are things that you should turn into a number and then rank people on. Um, they all require some thought. Um, but at least if you're bringing a set of these things to bear, um, then you stand a chance of of again checking your bias because I mean let's be honest a lot of these things come down to a kind of gut feeling in many ways and of a gut feeling of one sort or another about how a person's going to develop because you're always asking about the future um, and the purpose of this data is not to override that but to make you question where that feeling's coming from is, is it just coming from a place that you recognize this person as someone like you or is it coming from a from a recognition this person has something new and different to bring to the department. Um, and all of these are challenging. I think the final thing I would say is that um, universities need to be a lot more serious about the investment in hiring decisions. So you think about this as an investment. So if a university decided to spend five or 10 million euros on a piece of equipment, there'd be a very long process of getting that money and making sure it was the right choice and doing these things. You know, build a building, those are long-term planning, um, long-term process of whether this building is the right thing to do now, does it have the right configuration? All of those choices would be thought through very carefully and a lot of people would spend a lot of time on them. The decision to appoint someone, particularly to a permanent job, is an investment of about 10 to 50 million euros over a very extended period of time. So spending half a million 
on getting that choice right doesn't strike me as a bad, bad investment. So I think, again, even just having some of that data forces you to then ask that, that question. Um, and yes, it's hard. Um, and yes, it probably does involve having some of that expertise within the organisation to be able to do that analysis and pull it pull it out. And yes, all of those analyses are biased in their own way against particular groups, particular experiences. Um, but even then, you will see, gathering the data, you'll see that and at least you'll start to ask the questions around it. So, so it's more like hiring uh, new players. You know, you want to play Moneyball with hirings, like based on the data, based on the specific role they want to play in the team. I'm referring to the book and the, uh, the movie Moneyball. Uh, and I think in, in basketball, they're also not doing. I think more recently in football, they are actually doing these data-based uh, hirings. And, uh, and interestingly, universities are still doing it very, very old-fashioned way, right? Is that what you suggest? To have, you know, a, a mechanism for you know, continuously munching data and then looking at candidates based on a diversity or the, a range of... Uh, indicators and then starting the procedure of hiring for a longer period? I think it was Paul Groth um, who first sort of introduced this idea of moneyball for academics um, in, my, in my experience. I think it, it brings two sort of valuable thought processes. Um, one is that it does encourage you to look at a more diverse set of data sources. So I think one of the stories behind um, that, one of the the key elements of that story is precisely that they needed to look beyond the data they were already collecting and get a broader sense of, of what was going on. The other key piece is that notion of the contribution to the team, that there are different roles that might be played. And again, I think that's a really valuable addition to our thinking. Not everyone should be the same. Not everyone should be the big grant winner um, who just does their own thing and doesn't talk to anyone else in the department and just demands more and more space. Um, we all know people like that. Um, so the idea of different roles and different contributions I think is really valuable. I think where it breaks down is the assumption that we're just playing baseball. Because we're not just playing baseball, we're playing baseball and basketball and croquet um, and also theatre arts. Um, so we need not just to collect a set of data for a set of roles. Uh, we need to be thinking strategically about how we inform our decisions um, and what our strategies are and how those two things are coupled together. So, I mean, I come from the sciences, so you know, I always feel more data helps, um, but I'm also now in the humanities. So I see data as two things. One is something that's a bit risky to, to handle because it can be very misleading. Um, but the other, which I think is the more positive version of that is it's a great way of testing what you think is true. Cameron has also identified some principles for taking collective action. We need these actions to protect common pool resources in academia, such as trustworthy scholarly publications. He takes his inspiration from the political economy of commons. So the work on political economy uh, of commons or of groups and common pool resources, collective resources, um, is really the way I see it 
is the the fundamental work on how we can learn to cooperate um, as groups. Uh, what is it that it takes? Um, where does it work well and where does it not work well? Um, so Manker Olson talks specifically about problems of generating what he calls collective collective goods, which are things that are useful for a group as a whole, um, uh, but which, from an economic perspective, um, the group won't produce because um, there's an opportunity to free ride. So um, this is particularly true of, of infrastructures uh, where once it's there, you can use it, but why would I put money in if someone else will? And, and he identified three particular cases um, where that can be done effectively um, for larger groups. So the real moral of the story of all of this work is if you can get a group of people around a table and everyone can look each other in the eye and say, yes, we're going to do this together, right? Um, then generally you can do this. Um, and that works as long as there's trust. It tends to work when the groups are relatively homogeneous. Um, it works when they're kind of representing even sizes or, or powers. Um, but as the group gets bigger, this becomes a real problem. Um, and so Olson recognises two sort of three sort of narrow ways in which that problem can be solved. One is uh, all of them involve changing the effective group size. Um, so one is that you just compel people. <laughs> Um, and that, that relates to public good provision in the economic sense where um, we, you know, we pay tax um, for the purpose of um, providing various shared services in a country, um, but most governments feel that it's necessary to compel us to pay tax, that we wouldn't just do it out of, out of the goodness of our heart. And that provides you know, roads and, and those kinds of things. Um, one of the other things that um, Olson identifies is where there's an effectively an oligopoly, so where um, there might be lots of players, but a relatively small number of them are big enough that they can decide to do something. Um, and so we actually have lots of examples of that in the uh, research communications space, where it particularly it's the case with scholarly publishers. There are a small set of scholarly publishers that control about 60% of the market. So those five or six publishers can together decide to do something. Um, and in one case, one of the good examples of them deciding to do something was the case of building Crossref, um, the identifier infrastructure for, for scholarly works. Um, Olson's third version, which I think is the one that is perhaps interesting in terms of how we build these things, is what he calls a side effect. Um, and what that means is that as a side effect of building this collective good, there's also something that the individual members get back personally. Um, so one example of this, a classical example of this is um, subscriptions. So... Actually, when you think about a subscription journal, an electronic subscription journal, the, um, there's actually a public good, a collective good in having that content exist and be available. Um, the traditional model of making that work is to have a subscription benefit, which is that I personally get access to the content. Um, and that's why I'm paying, but there's a side effect. That's a side effect, in fact, of producing this, of producing the content as a whole. Um, and that made a lot of sense in a print world. Um, it makes less sense in, in, in our digital world. And so the challenge is, in many cases, when we think about um, digital systems, 
is to think about what are the side effects of generating the public good or the collective good that would still motivate groups and individuals to participate. And I think that's a really productive way of thinking about our failures to build things. We very often say we should build something because there's a collective benefit, um, but we don't think hard enough about what are the individual benefits for those who choose to, to be involved. So there's a distinction between those kinds of collective goods where you get something back personally, which is yours, and the kinds of collective goods that Ostrom was particularly interested in, which are common pool resources. So the collective goods that, or the personal goods, um, what, are, what Buchanan calls club goods, have the characteristic of being mostly non-rivalrous. That is to say, I can give you it and I still have it. So a digital file is a great example of that. Um, but excludable. So I cannot give it to you. It's very easy for me to keep it from you, um, though it gets harder and harder at scale, as we find out with things like Sci-Hub. Um, so those are, those are club goods or toll goods. And then um, there's another sort of quadrant in the diagram, if you like, um, which are common pool resources, which have the opposite characteristics. They are rivalrous. They can be used up, um, but they're quite hard to exclude people from. And what Ostrom was talking about in, uh, in her work was things like fisheries and forests that can be depleted if the community that uses them isn't using them thoughtfully and carefully. So they have to govern themselves. Um, and in Governing the Commons, the book in which she writes about this, she has a series of case studies on, on communities that have successfully done this. So her starting point is Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons, and she observes that it's, this doesn't always happen that there are communities that successfully govern and manage these kinds of resources. And I love her sort of line, um, if it works in practice, it must work in theory. So she had to develop then the theory behind how this could work. And, and her answer to the problem, which is similar to Olson's, is that um, you have to build up hierarchies of communities so that instead of having thousands of people around the table you can have representatives of groups that have enough, so there's a small enough group of people around the table. And then she, she identifies some of the same characteristics of those communities in terms of which ones are best able to solve problems of managing those kinds of resources. So the, in the scholarly world, um, some of those things that I think we could benefit from thinking about that kind of way are people's time. People's time is a common pool of resources. I think grant funding is a common pool resource that some groups and organisations have tried to strip mine, if I can push that analogy that far, um, and that collectively we need to think a little bit more carefully about how we're interacting, particularly with national governments and the conversations we're having and how we're cultivating that resource, thinking of it like a forest or a fishery where if we overfish, we're going to cause problems, um, so it needs to be, to be managed. Um, and then on the other side, on the club good side, um, there are things like prestige and attention um, and, and things like this that we also are, are in play in, in interesting ways. 
so once you think about the necessity for the technology to be at that kind of scale, then you immediately say, well, that's way too many academics. So maybe it does make sense to think, okay, this would have to be a collaboration of universities. What then do the universities get back? We're creating a collective good um, of data and interchangeable systems and validation and, and, and stuff like that. What's each university getting back um, that merits it putting resources in? Um, and that will depend on the nature of the, the service and the data and those things. So that, that analysis um, plays out in a very similar way for repositories, for publishing infrastructures, for funding even, um, for uh, data sharing, for um, archives, we, those sort of things are all kind of fit into a similar kind of space of, of systems and scales that we need to address. So how we go about building the systems that allow universities to collaborate more effectively while still being in competition is a bit of a challenge. Actually, the Netherlands does that very well um, by, well, you may not feel like it does it very well from the from inside, but compared to other countries, um, there's a lot more collaboration um, and heterogeneity between universities than, than you see in many other countries. Um, so there's a good example there. Um, it also points to the fact that you know you have a relatively small number of universities, so they can sit around a table and they can agree to do things um, in a way that's not true in the US or Germany, for example. Maybe we can just wrap up our discussion about the the three pillars of the governance that you mentioned, because I think that's very important for whoever decides to say, okay, let's now look at it from this framework. What are these three pillars and uh, how we can apply them to a very specific case in academic world? And if you use an example, please use an example that is not from academic publishing, because this is very much discussed, but I think these discussions apply to a lot of other uh, systems in academia and not only publishing. So we can also learn from those lessons. Yeah, so these uh, three principles uh, of governance for uh, were we originally put together thinking about infrastructure organizations, and particularly organizations supporting open scholarly infrastructures. So the three, the three pillars are really... Um, Community governance, so transparency and and responsibility to a community. Uh, the second one is financial sustainability. Um, so that relates to things like um, having a good a good model um, for financial sustainability, an actual revenue model, um, but also having the intent to generate a surplus. That was a little bit controversial, um, but our view was very strongly that even if an organisation is a not-for-profit, um, if you're not generating a surplus, you're brittle. You're, 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 you're subject to real risks when a downturn comes and you can't invest in the future. Um, and then having you know, financial reserves. Um, and then the third pillar um, is the one that's a little bit, it tends to be a little more controversial, um, but again, we thought it was really important, was the idea of uh, fork, forkability. Um, and this comes from open source communities, um, but it can be drawn much broad, more broadly. And so that's the idea that whatever the system is, if 
the community or a part of the community feels that something's going sufficiently wrong that they can take it away and build a new one. So that means that the technology is available, usually should be open source, that the core data um, subject to privacy issues uh, needs to be open. Um, and that the govern in a sense that the governance systems have to allow for that. And the intent the intent behind that was not that it should ever happen, but that it provides a really good escape valve for tensions, that the the threat of it happening should be enough to make a community really think hard about what it's doing and and and, and how it should work. Um, so an example that doesn't relate to scholarly communications. Maybe for the last one, I can already say, because uh, so you mentioned forking, it's like if you have a journal, for example, and there's editorial board, and then at some point you don't agree with the uh, you know, publisher's uh, policies, you say, you know, we take the editorial board, that's the main asset, we start a new journal with new policies. That happens in cases that the, the barrier to change is not so high journal for example is still a bit of barrier but for example for a department you know if a department does not go you cannot just build a new building and then bring uh, this staff which are not happy so i i read your third pillar is a bit different that you said there need to be a mechanism for protecting integrity mm -hmm. and sort of punishing the people who don't follow the, the ethics that are there so that's i, I that's the way i read uh, your third now and also financial stability is just sustainability uh, for it. It holds for department, it holds for yeah. community, it holds for association, a team of scientists. And of course, transparency and community governance is also, I think it applies to departments as well as it depends to a big scientific uh, infrastructure for publishing or conferences. I, I found it generally very, uh, very useful. Maybe you would like to give an example that's sort of, resonates with your experience uh, for applying these policies to a new uh, or some existing endeavor? Yeah, so actually, so a scholarly society, I think, is a, is a nice example in some ways. So as you say, for a, for a department in a university, um, the building is the big the big issue in many ways. I have, to be honest, though, always felt that um, universities should have to bid to have departments. So if your department's not happy with the university, you should be able to take your department to another university. I think that would be a really interesting um, model <laughs> of, of, of how things might play out. Um, um, but that's a, good, that's a thought experiment. It's not a very practical experiment. Um, but scholarly societies, I think, uh, have, have a lot of the characteristics of the department with less of... And so um, they can often become uh, ossified and run by very specific parts of the community. Um, they uh, quite frequently run financially into the ground because they haven't necessarily thought about um, all the options. Um, you know, if I go back to something John Wilbanks said to me many years ago, um, and it's a point he's made in, in, in many contexts, um, that any mission-driven organisation needs to know when it's finished. You need to have a clear sense of when you've done what it was you set out to do. Um, and you may decide as an organisation to then go off and do something else. That's that's absolutely fine. Um, but we too often end up just assuming things should continue because they exist. Um, and then we do things to help them continue because they exist. Whereas if we thought, I think, a little bit more carefully about what it would mean to have achieved the goals... Um, 
and how we build the systems that make it not catastrophic for these things to close down gracefully and for those resources to be redeployed to other purposes. Um, then we'd actually be able to do a lot of things a lot better. It goes back to your, your point about um, hiring decisions. Um, that one of the reasons why uh, universities have got into this cycle of only hiring people or only giving tenure to people who have a certain level of grant, and you certainly hear about this in the US with people you know, desperately on the tenure track time trying to get their first NIH R01 grant, um, and I've certainly heard it in the context of the Netherlands with the, the, um, the, the VD program, um, that you become dependent on that both as a decision-making tool and as a revenue tool. And A, that means you're stuck with not making your own strategy. You're not representing your own community and what its needs are. Uh, and B, you're dependent on the continued existence of that single revenue stream in a way which is not just not good business practice. It's not good financial management to be, to be dependent on a single revenue stream. So... Um, I think all of those things point to a mixture of understanding the collective action problems, thinking about community and who's being served and for what purposes, um, but also just plain old good. It's, this is pretty basic business practice stuff um, that we seem, again, not to be good at applying in the university. We want... We want um, we talk a lot about leadership and stuff from management and business theory. We don't necessarily actually apply some of the fundamentals. I understand that. Uh, maybe that is the last point, and that's about the scalability, because both in Ostrom and Olson's case, the success of Common has been empirically seen that it's always for societies which are in scale. You suggested that we can have oligopoly, then you can also still talk about it. But if you start from society and you try to govern it like commons, by definition, maybe, or by practice, it cannot be scaled very big. While now we have the universal sciences and universal international communities. So how can we you know, make peace between scaling up and still governing like a community? So I think there's a, there's a series of things to unpack there. Um, I'm more and more convinced that we need to focus on the question of building up communities and making the work that communities do more easily interoperable with the work that other communities are doing. And that's what's, in a sense, that's what science does. It's not that uh, a chemist and a theoretical physicist and a bioscientist are doing the same thing or can even speak to each other comprehensively. It's that there's enough of a shared framework that there's a common language and expectation of, of how things work. So I guess I would take issue with the idea that there is a universal um, science. What there is is a sort of patchwork of common frameworks um, that get to, to a certain scale um, and, then, and then tend to fail. Um, so what we need to do, I think, is think carefully about the communities themselves um, and the groups and how they're sustained at different scales. We need, and that involves, again, think, rethinking financing, rethinking governance, rethinking a whole series of things. Um, but in particular, I think a move away from the individual as the unit of assessment 
Um, and then there's a question of making those things more interoperable. So there's a whole pile of technical things that would make it easier for the work of, you know, and that's that's where data sharing and open access starts to play a role. Um, it's where common frameworks for lab notebooks or whatever it might be um, help to make um, things more easily accessible across groups. Um, and then that, you've got to think about that at different scales, which gets more and more complicated as you go up. Um, the... But there is a fundamental problem, which is we've got to, got to do this in the context of national governments, um, which are their own set of messy compromises. So we do need to form communities at large scales. Um, I think there's a natural way in which the national level um, can help deliver that and the regional level um, once you move that. I mean, I think it's the, one of the great success stories of the European Union um, is that it does manage to support that kind of scaling up, not always well, and there are plenty of problems, but nonetheless, when it comes to actually building systems out, Europe takes a long time over it, but it does eventually get it done. Whereas in a place like the US, you get lots of stuff happening, very little coherence, a lot of mess, and then eventually one system kind of wins, but not by design, just by the force of the market and luck. Um, and so, you know, somewhere in the middle would be great, but but that's not the way the world works. Um, so I don't think I've got any simple answers. Um, I think the thing that keeps coming back to me is to think really carefully about what happens when groups come into contact with each other. So what does it mean to think about coordinating groups at all of these different size scales um, so that the inevitable conflict that happens in that contact is productive? Um, and actually, if we look at the history of the academy, I think we've not done a bad job of this. We just need to think about generalising it a bit. So peer review is one example of this. Disciplines are another example. And we form these groups. We force them into contact. We set ground rules for what that looks like. And the challenge lies in figuring out what that looks like at the next scale um, with things like um, the different research agendas in different countries and in different regions. But also, I think, and this is the real test, um, if we can have a truly productive encounter with things like indigenous knowledge, one that's not just a grabbing and expropriation, but one which is a really um, respectful engagement in which both sides of that arrangement benefit. Um, and so that's kind of at the biggest scale. So between the science or the academic system, the Western academic system, if you like, and other knowledge systems, um, because we kind of need to do that because we need to save the world. Um, and there's a lot of knowledge out there we're not drawing on at the moment. So um, so it's certainly a big challenge, um, but I think it's one we probably ought to be trying to tackle. Thank you very much, Cameron Nalen. I learned a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks. If you want to check out earlier Road to Open Science episodes, then you can find them on the website of the Open Science Community Utrecht. And please share the podcast too. We are convinced that for the benefit of the whole scientific community, the discussion on open science must include a very broad and diverse range of viewpoints. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and let us know what you think of the podcast. Our Twitter handle is at sign R2OS podcast with a numeric 2. This podcast is made possible by the Utrecht Young Academy 
and with the support of the Utrecht University Library. Thanks go to our guest Cameron Nalon and to Bianca Kramer who brought us in touch with him. Marisa Moll is our production assistant and editing is done by Andy Clark. From me, San Lifaez, thanks for listening. Thank you.